Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I've entitled this Spiritual Warfare. And I want to introduce this notion. It's certainly prevalent in Ephesians. And I'll develop it more fully. So today, if you feel like you didn't get your money's worth, come back next week and I'm developing the same, the same thought. Ephesians depicts a, a world in which we engage spiritual powers. And so in chapter 2, there is the prince of the power of the air. 2, 1 to 2, you were dead in your trespasses. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so the defeat of these powers, which is being pictured in Ephesians, is through the church, but it's also through a kind of eschatology that we could say is an inaugurated eschatology. That is, the end is already now. We're in the experience of the end times, in a sense. Because Christ's reign has begun. That's what the writer of Ephesians is saying. And specifically, his reign over these spiritual forces. It says that he's raised us up with him. That we reign over these forces. And this is two six and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, is one that we are participating in now. And the rule we are carrying out is depicted as occurring in the church or through the church. Paul says this is his whole ministry. If you look at 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God has now been made known through the church. And then look at the next phrase. To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. At the end of the book, he's going to depict putting on the armor of God. We could call it spiritual warfare. That we're to do battle then with the armor of God. Now, we can misunderstand this. To imagine that there are territorial spirits or national angels or demons but in a sense I want to say the misunderstanding and kind of work from there because the misunderstanding has a bit of truth in it you know in the Old Testament certain geographical areas were depicted as ruled or and in the charismatic movement in the Pentecostal traditions I think it's too simplistic in its depiction between the split, you know, between the heavenly or the spiritual and the earthly. Nonetheless, I don't think we should leave out the spirit, but they're certainly integrated into one another. A few years back, a man named Frank Peretti wrote a novel about, he called it This Present Darkness. And he depicts, you know, that the warfare is actually a kind of up in the air with the spirits. And I, so I think we can over-spiritualize it. We can depict this in an unrealistic way. The, I always found Frank Peretti interesting 
because he's a man who suffers from a disease his growth is stunted and all of his life he has been bullied you know as a child and right up in and so here's a guy who experienced profound evil there was no mystery to the evil people were mean to him and I, I almost think he kind of spiritualized it to try to get out of the, his own evil circumstance. It's true that the nations and gods in the Old Testament, they're almost interchangeable. You can call Egypt by its god. In Daniel, there's a clear depiction of a sort of angelic struggle. Uh, this is Daniel 10:13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. This is the period that Daniel is in prayer and fasting. Then Michael, who is, this is the archangel, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And so Michael, the angelic being, is engaging the Persian spiritual force. Daniel is depicting, you know, he's part of this battle. And the prince here is an evil spiritual force, apparently. Now, I don't think we should read too much into Daniel, but we don't want to ignore Daniel either. In the book of Revelation, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letters are written to the seven churches, but letters two and three are addressed not to the congregation, but to the angel that is connected with that congregation. Whatever the nature of this angel, you know, whether it's a literal thing or metaphorical, the angels seem to in some way refer to the corporate personality of the church, its ethos or its spirit. That's been my experience with churches, with schools, with places that each has a distinct or had a distinct personality. Perhaps not as a spiritual entity, but the depiction is that there is a kind of a corporate personality that we're all familiar with. The angel of a church was apparently the spirituality of a particular church. Walter Wink describes this. He says, for the angel of an institution is not just the sum total of all that an institution is, which sociology is competent to describe. It is also the bearer of that institution's divine vocation, which sociology is not able to discern. Corporations and governments are creatures whose sole purpose is to serve the general welfare and when they refuse to do so, their spirituality becomes diseased. They become demonic. And so I think the implication of this view, an ancient view, that I think we need to combine with a New Testament understanding, is that the social and political is integrated with the spiritual. What Paul's describing as spiritual warfare is in some way this engagement with this corporate sort of personality. Perhaps every business, every corporation, every school, maybe every sports team, maybe every social reality is a combination of the visible and the invisible. 
the outer, the inner, the spiritual, and the physical. And right at the heart of, you know, the most materialistic institutions, whether you're talking about IBM, General Motors, I believe you're going to encounter a unique personality. For a time, I sold radio advertising when I was at Ozark. And I traveled all over the country. And I would go into various companies to deliver. Actually, I was just uh, writing the advertising and picking up the money. I have a memory of walking into a factory. It was a chicken packing plant. And just the minute I walked into that place, it was oppressive. And I, I don't know why. I, you know, just everybody in the place was angry. They were mean. And then I met the head guy. Just a kind of Scrooge-type character. And the whole place carried that personality. And so the powers that be that Paul is talking about, it's more, I think, it's certainly inclusive of the CEOs, but it infiltrates the whole thing. The systems themselves, the institutions, the structures that weave society into an intricate fabric of power relationships takes on a particular character or personality. As Walter Wink puts it, for the angel of an institution is not just the sum total, it is the bearer then of the divine vocation or the demonic vocation if it's gone bad. So these powers, you don't have to debate whether they're evil or not. This is Larry's point. Evil is evil. We can see it. They dump carcinogens in our drinking water. They hook entire populations on opioids. They've addicted a, a, an entire generation to drugs, to cigarettes. I think we're witnessing in this country a leader willing to kill his own citizens so as to maintain the economy. But that's not unusual, is it? These sorts of people, the dictators, the managers, sometimes they're just interchangeable because they are going to take on the same power-hungry characteristics. We've all seen the way power can get hold of fairly decent people. If you take them out of the institution, they might be okay. But you give them a bit of power or you put them in the institution and they are corrupted by that power. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's true. And part of this we can understand, you know, a great many of their decisions are being made for them by the logic of making money, the logic of the market, the pressure of competition, the cost of workers. And when that overall purpose is geared toward something that is ultimately not of value, not connected to a morality, then the institution itself will tend to become immoral. This is Dostoevsky's picture of the Catholic Church. But actually Dostoevsky is implicating every church. He's implicating the Eastern Orthodox in his depiction of the Grand Inquisitor. He says that invariably mankind as a whole has striven to organize itself on a universal basis. 
This is what the church did. Many great peoples have been there and peoples with great histories. But the loftier those peoples, the more unhappy, for more acutely than others have they been conscious of the need for a kind of forced union of beings, of human beings. The great conquerors, you know, Genghis Khan, we could add to that. The Hitlers, the Marxists, like a whirlwind through the world, striving to conquer the universe. But even they, though they do so unconsciously, express the same great need of mankind for universal union. And of course, what he's describing here is the church gone bad would create this universal union. Had you accepted the world, this is the picture. Christ has come back and what he's described is the three temptations of Christ. The church has given in to all of those temptations. Oh, we're going to give out bread to gain a following. We're going to create miracles, turn the stones into bread or leaping off the temple. Or we're going to be the world ruler. In other words, what Christ refused, Dostoevsky is saying, the church has given in to that temptation and in the process become evil. And so Dostoevsky pictures, you know, it's the time of the Inquisition and Christ comes back. The corrupting force of the church is such that the Grand Inquisitor, the one carrying out the Inquisition, locks Christ up. Here's the end of the story called the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers' Care of Mazov. Christ and the Grand Inquisitor are in prison. At last he quietly goes up to him, places the lamp on the table and says to him, Is it you? You? Receiving no answer, however, he quickly adds, No, do not reply. Keep silent. In any case, what could you possibly say? I know only too well what you would say. And you have no right to add anything to what has been said in former times. Why have you come to get in our way? For you have come to get in our way and you yourself know it. But do you know what will happen tomorrow? I do not know who you are and I do not want to know. You may be he, capital H, or you may be only his likeness. But tomorrow I shall find you guilty and burn you at the stake as the most wicked of heretics. And those same people who today kissed your feet will tomorrow at one wave of my hand rush to rake up the embers on your bonfire. Do you know that? In other words, the church would kill Christ again because he would interfere with the business that it's carrying out. Now Dostoevsky gives us one of the great depictions of the problem of evil and interestingly he never gives us some sort of theological or theoretical solution to the problem of evil. But I believe in the person, the main character of the novel, Alyosha, he gives us a concrete and practical solution. Alyosha is practically love incarnate. I think that's what Paul is doing throughout Ephesians. 
He acknowledges the world. He acknowledges the meaning. But he's depicting the society of the church as weaving an alternative understanding to the principalities and powers. Look at chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There is the spiritual forces working their way. But how do we resist? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here is the confrontation through the body of Christ, through love, with the principalities and powers. We confront them, and we confront them in a concrete fashion. They are part of history. They're not up there somewhere. The spiritual forces have a grip on human history. They have a grip on human corporations. They have a grip on human meaning, and we're surrounded by these principles and powers. And God's response is historical and concrete, in the person and work of Christ. Though we may be dealing with the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm takes shape in human institutions and actions, and that's where God in Christ has engaged the powers. That's where we engage the powers. And that's where we defeat the powers. That's why Paul can say, you reign in the heavenly places over the principalities and powers. The solidarity and love we have in the body of Christ provides a means, a final means of engaging the powers. Look at the end of the book, chapter 6, verse 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And so we have the weapons. We don't have to make the weapons, forge the weapons. The armor is provided. You know, the shield, the, the helmet of salvation, the belt of righteousness, the truth. They create an alternative meaning we do not have to engage the values and meanings by which we are surrounded. Ours is to be a practice of spiritual warfare in which we attempt to change the meaning, transform the meaning, change up the institutions of power. We can't escape 
the governments and the institutions of this world. We need them. They can be good. But we can apply the meaning that we have found in Christ to the structures of meaning and power by which we are surrounded. It's a demanding task, but it requires understanding the worlds of meaning. We have to understand that. We have to understand the powers and the way that they operate and the way that we live in them and engage them. And then we must entrust ourselves to God and not to these powers because these powers will always work violence in our lives. We must subordinate our purpose to His, as Paul says, we must be strong in the Lord by using the weapons He has provided. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.